The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Who is reading Shakespeare's sonnets? Marianne. (laughs) Marianne is reading them out to us. And which are your favourites? Without a doubt, mine is 116. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Then how does it continue? Oh, no. It is is an ever-fixed mark. mark. That looks, looks on storm. Oh. It's, is it Tempest? I do believe it is Tempest. Let me find it. It's strange you should be reading these, but... Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds. Or bends with a remover to remove. Oh, no. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on Tempest's. That's Kate Winslet in the Emma Thompson version of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. And guess what? I just managed to say the names of three of my favorite women in one sentence. Kate, Emma, and Jane are all creatively working toward expressing love of some kind. And to what do they turn? The sonnets of our old friend, William Shakespeare which, as we've discussed these past few weeks, were probably written during some downtime due to the plague that shut down London theaters in the late 16th century. Kate whispers the sonnet to herself in the rain, hoping for love, and she doesn't finish. So let's hear a full version read by Juliet Stevenson to kick things off. Let me not, to the marriage of true minds, admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bended sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Thank you, Juliet. You may know Juliet Stevenson as the mother in Bend It Like Beckham. That was a beautiful rendition. This is the third in our set of four Shakespeare sonnet episodes for this month of August. We looked at sonnets 18 and 29, and now we're jumping ahead to sonnet 116. This is the sonnet that often gets read at weddings, which makes a bit of sense, maybe and maybe not. We'll talk about that. How does sonnet 116 do in our arbitrary rankings of online sources, not too shabby. Ranker.com has it as number three of all the Shakespearean sonnets behind Sonnet 18, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, which is number one, but ahead of Sonnet 29, When in Disgrace with Fortune and Men's Eyes, which comes in at number four. Poemanalysis.com has it higher than both of those. Summer's Day is number six, When in Disgrace is nine, and today's Sonnet 116, Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds, comes in at number two. Classicalpoets.org counts them down like this. Summer's Day is number 10, When in Disgrace is number 8, and Let Me Not the Marriage of True Minds to the Marriage of True Minds is number 2. Why do these rankings matter? Well, they say something. There are 154 Shakespearean sonnets. They were all written by a genius. They are all blessed with genius to some degree. If you can make it into the top 10, well, that's pretty good. Usually it means there's a very high ratio of excellent lines to clunkers. That's the, that's the goal for a sonneteer. Write excellent lines, cross out the clunkers, avoid clunkers. Find new and exciting imagery, find the right idea to express and breathe life into it with the magic of your words, both sound and meaning, which will please our ear and set our imagination alight. Please our ear doesn't just mean sound good, but sound right. 
words that fit the poem, words that fit the idea. George Harrison and Ringo Starr weren't Eric Clapton and Keith Moon. They weren't showy guitar and drum soloists, but they fit the songs. They knew how to play to fit the songs. John and Paul had new ideas. They had beautiful melodies. They had the strong lyrics. They supplied the genius. There's a genius, a kind of genius to fitting yourself into that, not to layer extraneous genius on top of it. What's great about a sonnet is not an unusual word or a clever word or a shocking word or a long word or an impressive word, but the perfect word. When it's the word, it it may be surprising. It may be all those things. It may be unusual. It may be clever and so on. We don't want moon and June here, but it's the word that fits the meaning and the sound and it snaps together tight. That's what's pleasing. That's what gives the sonnet what it needs. And sometimes Shakespeare had to invent words for his verse, which is risky, but not when you can pull it off. If you stick to inventions that people will immediately recognize and understand, like those songs that immediately sound like old standards. If you invent a word that people think, oh, that must already be a word. I know what that means. And it's there for you to use. Let's tick through a few more rankings. Tweet Speak Poetry has it at number eight. Just behind Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, which is number seven. And Stage Milk has today's sonnet 116 at number three. Just behind Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, which is number two. You can see that a lot of these sonnets make it into the top ten together. There is kind of a general consensus, from what I can tell, from this roaming through the internet. There are some variances, but the sonnets I'm choosing for us to look at pretty much all make it into the top ten. But what does sonnet number 116 mean? Why is it so popular? Is it well understood? And what does it have for today's reader? Let me not to the listener of True Podcasts admit impediments. Sonnet number 116 today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join me today. Sonnet number 116, another heavy hitter. I'm enjoying these August sonnets. I hope you are as well. Maybe we should do more of these theme months. Wouldn't that be enjoyable? A little theme for Thursdays? We could do Edgar Allan Poe month. Might be fun. We should probably wait for October for that one. September... Who should we do in September? Maybe Philip Larkin, Elizabeth Bishop, Sylvia Plath. Oh, I'm starting to get excited. This could be very fun indeed. I will think about it, people. Okay, so today's episode is going to be shorter. Last episode was too long, I think. Hopefully I won't ramble on like that one. I'm still a little tired from it. Although our topic, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, sort of deserves a fuller treatment. I'm finding that my two-episode-a-week schedule, which I initiated to help everyone get through the pandemic, is taking a bit of a toll. It gets harder and harder to keep up, and you might be feeling the same. Too much history of literature, Jack. We're glutted. (laughs) Without your commute, now that you're working from home, Zooming, you might not have as much time to spend with the history of literature. I hear you. I hear you on that. Or maybe you're out of the pandemic now, out of the quarantine wherever you are, which is great. I'm glad to hear it. I hope you're safe and healthy wherever you are, whoever you are. In any case, let's have a shorter episode today and catch our breath. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break, come back with a few listener emails, and then get straight to work. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and 
quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, first email is from Anton. Subject, thank you. Grateful greetings to you, Jack. You have single-handedly stoked my interest in literature and made the pursuit wonderfully accessible. I think, perhaps, that I am a bit different from many of your listeners. I dream of being the type of engaged reader reader who can... Sorry. The type of engaged reader who can discover connections between pieces, intentional or otherwise, to learn from and build upon comparing and contrasting with stories I read years ago. As it is, I agonize over not being able to remember authors, storylines, or plot themes, in many cases, even after reading or listening multiple times. As I look through my podcast app at the numerous episodes of yours that I have starred, I am not sure why I marked those particular ones and can remember, in most cases, none of the details that moved me, just to head off your sense of humor, I have to put it plainly that this is a personal fault and is in no way a comment on the quality of your history of literature podcast. Smiley face. <laughs> well, you remember that at least. You predicted me all too well. In one sense, says Anton, my forgetfulness is great because I can look forward to listening again and hopefully absorbing a bit next time. Otherwise, it's immensely frustrating because with nothing concrete staying with me from story to story, author to author, it can start to feel like a futile exercise that doesn't result in any growth. However, your podcast helps me get value out of the simple exposure to all these wonderful works of literature. I'm grateful for all that you've done to create a safe space for me to pleasantly bang my head into various authors over and over again until they start leaving a few dents. <laughs> Perhaps because of the obvious links to current events, your series on Baldwin and Faulkner may be the exception that proves the rule. I keep playing pieces of going to meet the man in my head and marveling at the contradictions of Faulkner. Taken as a series, including Dry September, these episodes surely comprise one of your masterpieces. I'm simply emailing to say thank you, so I'll buck the trend and not include any last-minute critiques of your fabulous production, as if I have any another smiley face. It's impossible to please everybody. Some impossible things should be attempted regardless for the experience and challenge, but pleasing everybody is not one of those things. So thank you for your dedication and for sharing your skill and passion with all of us. Take care and stay healthy. Anton. Wow. Thank you, Anton, for such a beautiful email. This is great to hear. We all come to literature in different ways and with different approaches and different styles. We all take different things from it. There's a lot of things I forget, too. A lot of movies I forget. A lot of things I've gone through that don't stick with me. The Marvel comic universe comes to mind. I've seen all of those with my kids. I don't think I care enough about any of it to have it really resonate. Although they make connections, they find things very interesting. They see things that I don't. But that's okay. I think banging your head into the works and hoping for a few dents is not all that different from I, how I feel much of the time. I'm glad you've been enjoying the show, and I hope you stay healthy as well. Here's one from Jorge, subject to a new endeavor. Dear Jack, suffice to say, I never was one for podcasts. I have just concluded my undergrad in English and writing, and as I breezed somewhat through my Spotify playlists, I thought, 
might as well give a podcast a shot. Being the nerd that I am, I searched for literature-related content, ultimately finding the history of literature. Before I found your podcast, my nocturnal endeavors consisted of listening to strange YouTube videos, which did nothing to grow my intellect. However, as I began to dabble more in the podcast culture, your podcast increasingly intrigued me more by the day. I'll never forget the first episode I listened to, a reading of The Things They Carried, which is one of my favorite short stories. Nevertheless, I became enamored with the content of your podcast after that glorious episode. Missing my college professors and intriguing lectures on Blake or Hawthorne, I have found a sort of sanctuary in your podcast. As I listen to your podcast, whether if I am about to slumber or delivering food during these hot summer days, I find peace. And above all, my mind is stimulated by your engaging content and your knowledge for literature. Your episodes on Baldwin and Faulkner are absolutely fantastic and insightful. Your insight regarding comparative literature has thus motivated me to pursue a graduate degree in literature. So, my dearest Jack, please continue to delight your listeners with your amazing insight. You have hooked, you have me hooked every week, and I cannot wait to hear what's next. Literature transcends, and I cannot thank you enough for exposing me to the way literature transcends through a podcast like yours. Sincerely, Jorge. Hmm, Jorge. Thank you so much for sending me that gorgeous email. I'm very pleased to hear that you've been enjoying the show, and I am honored to know that it's inspired you to pursue a graduate degree in literature. I hope it goes well for you. Good luck with your studies, and please do stay safe and healthy. Okay, that's enough for the emails. Moving quickly, as promised, let's take our final break and then dive into the world of Shakespeare's sonnet number 116. Speaking of the Marvel comic universe, how about hearing from Loki, a.k.a. actor Tom Hiddleston? Tom, how would you like to read sonnet number 116 for us? Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks but bears it out, even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Hmm. Wow, that sets the table for us, doesn't it? This is a poem about love, about being in love, about enjoying love, and so it's very suitable for weddings. Love conquers all. All you need is love, and hey... I don't mean to be sappy here, but when you go to a wedding, well, people come to weddings in different stages of their lives, don't they? Don't you have sort of a wedding season? If you think of your life as a season, or (laughs) think of your life as full of seasons, first, you might have a few random weddings, like maybe your aunts and uncles or some remarriages or something, and then there's a flurry when your generation gets married and you have all your cousins and your friends and your siblings and yourself. 
and then there's a gap where everyone around your age is busy having kids, and then suddenly it's graduations for all those kids, and then there's another flurry of weddings, the weddings of your friends' children. And people become sort of professional wedding goers when they reach one of those seasons in their life. I knew some people like that. They would plan their summer around the weddings of their friends' children. Oh, who's getting married this summer? So-and-so in California? Oh, and so-and-so in Hawaii. Okay, we'll hit the one and then we'll fly out to the other. Good summer. Two weddings back-to-back. Let's pack our summers full of these weddings. Our wedding, the one I had, was very small. We only had room for, I don't know, 60 people or something. It was under 200, I know. And yet there was this couple, a friend of my in-law's, whom I had only met a few times and didn't really care for them at all. They were kind of mean to me. My wife didn't care for them that much either. And we were forced by the size of our wedding to keep our guest list very small. And yet we had to invite this couple. My in-laws insisted on it. And the main reason was that the couple was planning to be in the area going to some other wedding the weekend before ours. And they wanted to have another wedding to go to. So they were on the list And they came to our wedding. They were professional wedding goers. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I'll never do that. I'll never invite myself to a wedding. I'll never crash one. I'll never just show up. And now, well, it's been a while since I've been to a wedding. And I think, hey, maybe I should go. I'd like to go. I don't want to be totally unwelcome. But if it's borderline, (laughs) if I might suggest it to someone who's, well, I might go anyway. Maybe that's the quarantine talking, but it's also the feeling of I'm kind of in that frame of mind now as my kids get older, starting to get eager to have some graduations and some weddings. You know that your body gets you ready for things, right? Psychologically, you can see this when you have kids. The scariest thing you could tell a young woman, or one of the scariest, at least in my experience, is about the experience of labor, of childbirth. It's so painful. Who wouldn't be scared by it? Carol Burnett, sorry, Carol Burnett used to say it was like taking your lower lip and stretching it up over your forehead and attaching it to the back of your head. It's not exactly pleasant sounding, right? And the guy will be there too. It's hard for him in a different way. And here's another thing people tell you. You won't sleep at night for a while, and you'll have to be home. You can't go out. You can't run around like you did before the baby came. Ah, yikes. You hear all that, and you think, how are we going to do this? How will I adjust? But then, guess what? Pregnancy starts to adjust you. My wife started getting larger and heavier, and she'd be short of breath, and we weren't running around anymore because we couldn't. We were staying home. We were resting. We would put our feet up. By the time the baby actually came along, we had already curtailed our lifestyle. We didn't miss those late nights at the movies or visiting friends for drinks or any of that. The baby's birth didn't take it away all of a sudden. The pregnancy took it away gradually. The same thing went for sleep. My wife tossed and turned in that final month or two. We got used to fitful nights. It wasn't such a shock to the system to have fitful nights when we had a new mouth to feed. Even the labor itself was something we were prepared for in a way. Not at first. At first, my wife was scared and so was I. But then as her body got heavier and less comfortable and her back hurt and her legs hurt and she was nauseated and she felt swollen and tired and aching, she was ready. Let's get this over with. Let's see the baby. Let's get this done. And so when we went to the hospital, we weren't terrified. We were excited and a little relieved. This is going to be over. This terrible phase, the ninth month of pregnancy, it's going to be over. Here's another way life prepares you if you're lucky enough to live a long time. You see the people ahead of you die. By the time you reach your 70s and 80s and hopefully even longer, you've seen your grandparents and your parents and their whole generation Your aunts and uncles and many of your friends and colleagues have already gone. It's a little less terrifying when you know that the others you've admired and looked up to and loved have crossed into that unknown territory as well. And you yourself might be slowing down. It's not the same as being cut down in the prime of life in your 
early 20s, let's say, if you were faced with a bad diagnosis, that's rough. But for most people, as the the aging process takes over, life prepares you for what's to come. So back to marriage. How are we conditioned to respond to marriage? I think when we're young, it's all about love, being in love, that feeling that we ourselves have. Wow, this changes me. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about being young and being in love and being me. How fun it is to be me. And then you mature a little bit and you start looking at couples and you think, is this a good one? Is this a good couple? Is that a good couple? What a nice marriage. They've united. All your friends start pairing up. They become not the people you knew before, but part of a team, part of a family, something a little different. It's like they used to be on your team and now they branched out and started a team of their own. And maybe you've started a new team as well. And what's going to make that team work? Love. What else? can possibly make something like that work. Money? Well, people can fight over money. Having a lot of money doesn't necessarily make things easier. Compatibility? Well, that helps too. But if you ask me for what makes a marriage happy, let's say we're going to bet. And you say, will these two who are standing up there about to be married, will they be able to raise kids together? Will they be able to have one another forever to have and to hold in sickness and in health? Is this going to work? And you say, well, yes, because they're compatible. They're two people who get along well, personality-wise, they're a good fit. And I say, well, I've got two people over here who are in love. Who's got a better chance for a happy and fulfilling marriage? The problem with making a bet like this is that people don't stay the same. They grow and change. So if you have compatibility without love, you might not make it very far. People will get restless. They'll feel trapped. They'll think this is nice, but it's not love, is it? And maybe within a year or two, they'll meet someone else and they'll think, oh no, I married for compatibility. I settled. I should have gone for love. But the people who go for love, even at the expense of compatibility, they might find that love fades over time or it can fade. And if they don't have compatibility, well, then that's rough too. Now they're in a marriage without love and with a lot of strife. The love smoothed all that over. But if that's gone, then what? So you sort of need both to be truly happy. And that's why weddings are so great when you get a little older. You say, let's go get an infusion of love. Let's go see how these people are celebrating love. Let's help them celebrate it. Let's remind ourselves of what love looks like and how great it is and how necessary it is. We'll see these two people who could have chosen anyone and they could have chosen not to get married at all or to get married without a wedding. And yet here they are choosing each other, choosing to get married and choosing to have a celebration where they invite all these people. And for a few hours or a day or a weekend, we're all going to be together in a spirit of love. Graduations are for accomplishments and achievements and pride and setting forth into the world. Funerals are for sorrow and mourning and loss and sympathy. And weddings are for love. So, yes, let's do this. Let's crank up the love. Let's jumpstart our our tired and cold engines. This is what I'm imagining a married couple saying. Our engines have been sitting in the dead winter for a while. Let's hook up the jumper cables and jolt them back into life. It's a very Wisconsin metaphor, by the way. Jumper cables are a part of life up there in the north. Okay, so now love is important. We know that. Love is talked about all the time. We know that, too. It's certainly covered in literature. Who else talks about it well? Well, popular music does. Rhymes. Verse, greeting cards, who tells us something we don't already know? How about roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you? That's a love poem, I guess. Kind of cute, but it's not really going to help us, is it? Cliches like that. How about this song by John Lennon? It's called Love. I've heard it praised because it describes love in a dozen different ways, and none of them are cliches. Not easy to do for a 20th century songwriter. A lot of songs came before him. A lot of the 
A lot of the definitions and descriptions of love have been used up. Let's see how John Lennon does. Love is real. good one. Love is wanting to be loved. So what do we have? Love is real. Real is love. Love is feeling. Feeling love. Love is wanting to be loved. Love is touch. Touch is love. Love is reaching. Reaching love. Love is asking to be loved. Love is you. You and me. Love is knowing we can be. Love is free. Free is love. Love is living. Living love. Love is needing to be loved. Not bad. All you need all you need is love is probably even better from a lyric standpoint. Sounds like a cliche, but it, it's somehow fresh. He had such a great brain for this stuff. Now you'll hear in John Lennon, and I think this is the way most poems will go about it. Love is, love is, love is. Love is this, love is that. Love is free, free is love. Love is living, living love. Love is needing to be loved. Some beautiful thoughts here. Shakespeare, as we'll see, takes a different approach in Sonnet 116. His is full of knots. It's not this, it's not that, it's not. Oh no, he says at one point. <laughs> don't think it's, don't think it's X. Don't think it's Y. It's Z. And if it's not Z, well, actually, let me save that. That's going to come in our final couplet, which once again, Shakespeare hits out of the park. Final couplet is different this time. It uh, resonates in a whole different way, but we will cover that. We don't want to jump ahead of ourselves. You know who else gives us a good description of love? This is another wedding favorite. Paul from the New Testament. Here he is in the letter to the Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's pretty good, too. That's a combination of things love is and things love isn't. It's close to Shakespeare. Love never ends, says Paul to the Corinthians. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It rejoices in the right. That's how it feels when you're in it. The great thing about those lines from Paul is that it starts out, at first, it sounds like a person. Love is patient. Love is kind. And you think that you're talking about what it means to be a good lover, a good spouse. You'll be patient. You'll be kind. You won't insist on your own way. You won't be irritable or resentful or boastful. And I promise to do all those things. That's kind of, you can imagine two people standing together, facing one another, saying their vows, listening to someone read that passage from Paul and thinking, good, this is this is how it will work for us. If you be patient and you be kind and I'll be patient and I'll be kind. It's like a how-to manual for these lovers. But then Paul's lines, they slip into a greater abstraction. Suddenly you're not talking about a personification of love, but a kind of glorification of love, a feeling that love has to be bigger than us. It's an element. It's something beyond us. It's a force. Love hopes all things, endures all things. That's not just an instruction to the young lovers for how to behave, how to conduct themselves, how to be compatible. This gets read all the time at weddings, people. <laughs> I don't think I'm imagining that this has gone through many people's minds if they're not too numb or in shock to hear what's happening. 
These lines get drummed into their mind. And the first part is saying, here's how you should behave in the partnership. When the doors are closed and it's just the two of you, be patient with one another. Don't be jealous. Don't boast. Don't be arrogant or rude. That's how you're going to be happy together. If you can remember all these little tips. But then the last line, love never ends. It endures all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. That's different, right? That's not mismanners telling people it's good to be patient with one another. That's saying to the young lovers, there is this very powerful thing out there. It's bigger than you both. You need it. You will want to tap into this. If you're religious, it's like God or it is God. That's what we're talking about here. That's the scale we are talking about here. A giant thing as old as the hills and bigger than the two of you. And don't think you're going to get anywhere without it. And all these people at the wedding, whether they're young and on the verge of this themselves, or whether they're old and their hair is gray and they're reflecting upon it, it is there for that reason. Love. Love and more love and more love. It's there for us all if we choose to let it in and if we choose to spread it around, if our hearts are open to it, if we're not so crimped and crabbed and cynical that we don't let ourselves feel it and enjoy it and embrace it and do our best to exude it ourselves. So, heavy hitters, John Lennon, New Testament Paul, and now... Shakespeare, the man who outraces us all, as Virginia Woolf put it, what does he have for us on the subject of love? Well, he has a reference to marriage, first of all, and not just to marriage, but to the marriage ceremony. Impediments was already a word used in the wedding ceremony. We might know it as, if any of you know cause or just impediment why these two persons should not be joined together in holy matrimony. You know that phrase, right? In Shakespeare's day, He has it as, if either of you know any inward impediment why you should not be conjoined, that's in Much Ado About Nothing. Some people have commented that this is an interesting choice to be a staple at heterosexual weddings, Sonnet 116, since it comes in our Fair Youth section of Shakespeare's sonnets where he's addressing poems seemingly to a younger man. And the love expressed more often than not is kind of a platonic ideal of love. That's not really such a jarring juxtaposition if you think about it. Shakespeare had kind of a problem with lust, as we'll see in the Dark Lady poems. But this poem is about love. Weddings are not really about lust. Honeymoons, maybe, but weddings are about love. And so it kind of makes sense that the poem used at weddings, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual weddings, is from the fair youth section. Platonic love is what Shakespeare is talking about here. And I don't mean platonic just in the sense of not sexual, but in the sense of idealized, idealized love. It is kind of sexual. It's sexual, but not yet. Sexual, but not at this particular moment. Sexual, but set that aside for a minute so we can talk about love in its greatest and purest form. Sexual, but let's talk for a minute about love and the harmony of the universe, the music that melts the stars. Tucker Brook, the critic, has this to say about the words that are used, the rhymes and the meter and the diction. He says, quote, In Sonnet 116, the chief pause in sense is after the twelfth line. Seventy-five percent of the words are monosyllables. Only three contain more syllables than two. None belong in any degree to the vocabulary of, quote, poetic, unquote, diction. There's nothing recondite, exotic, or metaphysical in the thought. There are three run-on lines, one pair of double endings. There's nothing to remark about the rhyming except the happy blending of open and closed vowels and of liquids, nasals, and stops. Nothing to say about the harmony except to point out how the fluttering accents in the quatrains give place in the couplet to the emphatic march of the almost unrelieved iambic feet. In short, The poet has employed 110 of the simplest words in the language and the two simplest rhyme schemes to produce a poem which has about it no strangeness whatever, except the strangeness of perfection. Simple rhyme, simple meter, simple words marching forward toward their ending. The last two lines here are kind of amazing, as I mentioned, but let's hold off on that for now. Let's just celebrate the stately way the first 12 lines make the case. 
And yet, it's not totally as easy as the two previous sonnets we've looked at. There's more here to unpack. The illusions and the metaphors maybe don't spring easily to the 21st century mind. So let's take a look. First line, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. It runs over into the second line. Shakespeare's saying, you are asking me if there's an impediment here? You want to know if there's anything that means these two shouldn't be joined? Well, if their minds are true, if they truly believe they're in love, if they're not fooling themselves or lying to themselves, then who am I to say that there's an impediment? I think that's how most people are when they sit in the audience. Maybe there's a mom or two who looks at the marriage and thinks, well, he's not good enough for my daughter. (laughs) Or she's not good enough for my son. Maybe there are some holy rollers out there who think, well, she's not even a virgin. Or, oh, didn't he cheat on her during their engagement? That kind of thing. But for the most part, I think we're all in agreement. If these two people are in love, then who am I to jump up and say, aha, I have an impediment. So Shakespeare is starting with that basic principle. But his next thought advances things. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove What do those lines mean? Ah, they're so good. But what do they mean? Shakespeare's jumping into the abstract concept of love here. He's saying, I already told you I'm not going to object to this marriage if the two people are in love and they're honest about it. Because what is love? What would an impediment mean? That they aren't suited for one another? One is tall and one is short? They're from warring families or different races or different levels of education. One is dreamy and the other practical. Who am I to say that any of that is any reason to object if love is there between the two of them? Love doesn't discriminate. It doesn't try to change. It doesn't disappear if there's some kind of problem or glitch. If you think it does, then you're not talking about love. Next lines. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. Metaphor here is a lighthouse, like the littlest stars, as Faulkner put it. The lighthouse is just there through any storm, through calm nights too, it is the same, ever-fixed. Lines 7 and 8 take us into the heavens. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Okay. Star to every wandering bark. This is the North Star, the one that gets ships out of trouble. Wandering barks are lost ships. Lost ships and their captains can look up and position themselves by the North Star. The North Star is even better than a lighthouse. It's a super lighthouse in the sky. Just as God, perhaps, or angels are the super sources of love in the sky. Or the universe and its sky and its vast stars and its infinite reach are also where we might look for love. Love is big like that. It's grand. It expands to the greatest reaches. It's bigger than us. It fills up time and, in this case, space. The line, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken, we're still talking about the North Star here. We know that it's high. We can even say how far away from Earth it is. But what's its value? What's the value of the North Star? What's the value of love? How much is it worth to us? Unquantifiable. It defies our ability to set a price on it or a value. It's beyond human value. So, the first quatrain we've had was about marriage and why the nature of love is such that you wouldn't object to a marriage if people are truly in love. The second quatrain, second four lines, were about the eternal fixed quality of love, like a lighthouse or the North Star, there for us to guide us, but not ours to own or diminish. You can't cut the North Star in half and sell it off. Love isn't something you can pin down or slice into pieces and sell for profit. It's bigger than us. Beyond us. Now, we're in our third quatrain, and we move here from space to time. The lines are, Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickles compass come. Okay, compass here means range. Like when you draw with a compass, you circumscribe an area. 
And here Shakespeare says, love lasts forever, love endures, love is long. Oh, but these two aren't going to look the same. I get it. I get what you're thinking. This beautiful young woman will have wrinkles and sags. This handsome young man will be old and fat and bald. Sure, sure, that'll happen. Those rosy lips and cheeks are going to give way to time. Time's bending sickles. You've seen the Grim Reaper, right? The guy with the sickle? Well, that guy is coming for the beauty here. Don't get too attached to it. He'll take it away. It happens. I know that. I'm not naive. (laughs) All this I'm imagining in Shakespeare's mind. But even so, he says, love is not time's fool. Beauty might be, but love is not. Love is bigger than time. Love outlasts time. Next two lines finish our third quatrain. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. Shakespeare's saying, if you're talking about two people who are in lust, who are physically attracted to one another, then fine. They'll get old, they'll change, maybe what they have now will die. Time will win. But if we're talking about love... It's not going to be a matter of hours or weeks. It's not going to be dependent on a few wrinkles or contingent upon a few extra pounds. If it's love, it's going to go out even to the edge of doom. You'll die in love. You will die in love. Your last day of life, love will be there for you. Those videos of men and women in their 80s who've been married for 60 years, they're separated, maybe for health reasons, and then they're reunited. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, the light in their eyes. Those two are unrecognizable from the people who met and fell in love and got married. Their faces are altered. Their faces are changed. The rosy lips and cheeks are gone. But that light in their eyes when they see each other, that's love. That's there. That's endured. And now our final two lines. It's not a reversal per se but it's still kind of breathtaking. It's Shakespeare betting on himself. Shakespeare the poet is putting everything he has on the line that what he has just said about love is true. The lines are, If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. What a way to end the poem. Now some people say proved and loved were pronounced differently. Shakespeare's time, they rhyme. I don't know exactly how, proved and louved, maybe, or proved and loved. I don't know. Something in the middle, I suppose. It doesn't matter. Proved and loved, it's close enough. It suits the ear. It's an eye rhyme, they call it. But I also like near rhymes. But what a way to end the poem. Think about the content here. He says, if I'm wrong about this, if this be error... And upon me proved, if you show me that I'm wrong, if I'm wrong and you show it to me, if you persuade me that I'm wrong, if it's not Z, then I never wrote a word. I take it all back. Nothing I've written is worth a thing. That's how strongly I feel that I know what love is, and it's what I just told you in those 12 lines that came before. And then he says, and furthermore, if that's not love, then love isn't real. Either love is as good and as powerful and has all the qualities I've just given to it, or it's a fiction, a facade. It's nothing at all. It's all or nothing here, folks. It's like Flannery O'Connor talking about the Eucharist. Well, if it's a metaphor, then the hell with it. Either this is love or love doesn't exist. Either this poem is about love or I don't know how to write poetry. I take it all back. You can cross it all out. I'm a stupid fool who's been living a lie. What a way to end a poem. Shakespeare, who outraces us all, has beat us to the finish line again. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. We will have one more episode on Shakespeare's sonnets next Thursday, we hope. I shouldn't promise anything. There may not be impediments when it comes to the marriage of true minds, but when it comes to a podcasting schedule, well, my goodness. Impediments up the wazoo. (laughs) 
That's where we've come to, folks. That's the difference between Shakespeare and Jack Wilson in a nutshell. Shakespeare has let me not to the marriage of true minds, admit impediments, and Jack Wilson comes up with, well, I've got impediments up the wazoo. I feel like Shakespeare is up there, priceless like the North Star, and I'm down here in my wandering bark. Only the night is cloudy, I'm rowing in circles, and there's a leak that's taking me under. Impediments up the wazoo. That's an understatement. I should probably rename the podcast to that, actually. The Globe and Mail, the fine Canadian publication, wrote a very nice review of the History of Literature podcast recently. And they said something about the title, like, hey, don't let the pedantic title put you off. (laughs) I wonder if they would like it better if I called it Impediments Up the Wazoo with Jack Wilson. Probably not. And probably get some very disappointed people who are searching for something else altogether. But let's not go there. Instead, let's wrap things up. We are a member of the Podglomerate, which you can find at www.thepodglomerate.com. And we're partnered up with LitHub Radio. Learn more about the show at historyofliterature.com or by following me on Twitter at thejackwilson. That's the. Jack, J-A-C-K-E, Wilson. I am Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Conglomerate, a sonic universe.